Welcome to Good Heavens, a podcast about the human side of astronomy and cosmology. Good Heavens is a podcast examining and appreciating the wonders of the cosmos from a biblical perspective, designed for education and wholesome entertainment for the whole family. From the most distant galaxies to the strangest stars in the universe, Wayne and Dan cover a wide variety of cosmological and astronomical topics as they point to the glory of God in Christ. Secular cosmologist Dr. Sean Carroll, in an essay written in 2012 for the Blackwell Companion to Science and Christianity, noted that, quote, Indeed, in our actual world, God is essentially never invoked in scientific discussions. You can scour the tables of contents in major physics journals or titles of seminars and colloquia in physics departments and conferences, looking in vain for any mention of possible supernatural intervention into the workings of the world, end quote. Writing an article for the New York Times in 1978, the late agnostic astronomer Robert Jastrow said, quote, When an astronomer writes about God, his colleagues assume he is either over the hill or going bonkers, end quote. In 1994, Sir Fred Hoyle, in his autobiography, Home is Where the Wind Blows, Chapters from a Cosmologist's Life, echoes Jastrow's observation about scientists writing about God's existence. Quote, It were better for a scientist to have a millstone hung around his neck than that he should admit to such a belief. Yea, verily, if he does so, his papers will be rejected. He will receive no financial assistance in his work, the publishers of his books will receive threatening letters, and his children will be waylaid on their way home from school, as well as might he seek to pass through the eye of a needle, for to hold such a view is the greatest possible scientific heresy." End quote. But God in science is not a taboo subject if one is against his existence. Consider popular atheist Richard Dawkins' thoughts about the universe and our DNA. Quote, The universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is, at bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but blind, pitiless indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music, end quote. Or consider the thoughts of Stanford University physicist Leonard Susskind, who believed that design in the universe was merely an illusion. Quote, God made man with some purpose that involved man's ability to appreciate and worship God. Let's forget that story. The whole point of science is to avoid such stories, end quote.
Or how about the thoughts of cosmologist Dr. Lawrence Krauss, who has argued that the entire universe is one gigantic illusion? In a December 2016 lecture, he said plainly, quote, The world we see is an illusion, end quote. Not only that, but in a 2009 lecture given to atheists, Krauss jokingly told those gathered to, quote, forget Jesus, end quote. Krauss says, quote, The amazing thing is that every atom in your body came from a star that exploded, and the atoms in your left hand probably came from a different star than your right hand. It really is the most poetic thing I know about physics. You are all stardust. You couldn't be here if stars hadn't exploded, because the elements, the carbon, nitrogen, oxygen, iron, all the things that matter for evolution, weren't created at the beginning of time. They were created in the nuclear furnaces of stars, and the only way they could get into your body is if those stars were kind enough to explode. So forget Jesus. The stars died so that you could be here today. End quote. Astrophysicist Neil deGrasse Tyson, in his popular 2017 book, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, suggests that the universe is a, quote, cold, lonely, hazardous place, forcing us to reassess the value of all humans to one another, end quote. And what exactly is the value of all humans in such a forsaken cosmic wilderness? The late planetary astronomer and science popularizer, Dr. Carl Sagan, summed it up this way. We are all, quote, inconsequential, a thin film of life on an obscure and solitary lump of rock and metal, end quote. These strange sayings didn't just come out of nowhere, but have been gradually shaping our minds and imaginations about the universe and our place within it since the acerbic religious skepticism of David Hume and the 18th century Enlightenment, which might be better classified as what some have termed it the endarkenment. If the I am of the scriptures is relegated to a mere was or has been, then so too will human lives become a thing of the past. If the universe is an illusion, so are we. If we forget God, we ruin ourselves. Merely knowing about what stars or the human body are made of has not yielded world peace. Scientific advancements for all their wonders, scientific models about the cosmos and our humanity have not made us better people, nor have they exhorted or encouraged us to treat one another with kindness, compassion, or love. If I am cosmically insignificant, if I am but a thin biological film, or worse, a mere illusion, so are my neighbors. The smallness of Earth amidst the alleged impersonal vacuity of empty space has no moral force to make us love one another.
Using scientific models to denigrate the cosmos as being created by Christ and to denigrate our existence as being image bearers of our Creator is an abuse and misuse of science. Those who wrongly employ science in this manner should be challenged. In a 2018 book, Christ and the Created Order, Perspectives from Theology, Philosophy, and Science, Brian Brock notes that Genesis encourages us to see that, quote, the whole world is to engage in polemical warfare with the myths of the age that obscure the works of the living, covenanting God. As the gods of Canaan, Babylon, and Egypt competed for the affections of the ancient Israelites, so too do the myths of the modern age shape the perceptions of modern Christians, end quote. Brock features insights from the late British philosopher Mary Midgley from her insightful work, Evolution as Religion. Midgley observes that, quote, Evolution is the creation myth of our age. By telling us our origins, it shapes our views of what we are. It influences not just our thought, but our feelings and actions, too, in a way which goes far beyond its official function as a biological theory. To call it a myth, Midgley notes, does not, of course, mean that it is a false story. It means that it has great symbolic power, which is independent of truth, end quote. In other words, the question of the truth or falsity of Darwin's theory aside, Darwin's ideas have social and moral consequences that overreach into areas of anthropology, morality, truth, and what it means to be human, things that are well beyond the scope of material science. To clarify, we are not indicting all practitioners of the physical sciences, but only those thoughts and ideas coming from the scientific community which presume to speak authoritatively about the human person and the existence of God. As theologian James M. Hamilton observes, quote, Our struggle is not against flesh and blood. The study of biblical theology is like a quest to become someone who can pull down strongholds with weapons mighty to God. For the quest to succeed, we must learn to destroy arguments and lofty opinions raised against the knowledge of God taking every thought captive to the obedience of Christ, 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5. Welcome to this entry point on the path toward becoming a biblical theologian, end quote. What is often not mentioned by the secular purveyors of an alleged illusory, deathly impersonal cosmos is how the intricacies and wonders of the universe can and do lead some scientists to the foot of the cross, as was the case with cosmologist Frank Tipler. Tipler notes, quote, When I began my career as a cosmologist some 20 years ago, I was a convinced atheist. I never in my wildest dreams imagined that one day I would be writing a book purporting to show that the central claims of the Judeo-Christian theology are in fact true, that these claims are straightforward deductions of the laws of physics as we now understand them. I have been forced into these conclusions by the inexorable logic of my own special branch of physics." End quote.
Such was also the case for former atheist and astrophysicist Dr. Sarah Salviander, who studied physics and astronomy at the University of Texas at Austin with Dr. Steven Weinberg. As Sarah writes, quote, One beautiful summer day as I was walking across campus, I suddenly realized there was no way the universe could have just happened without a conscious cause. I had the sense that some great intellect had created a universe complete with black holes and left its fingerprints everywhere. Without warning, the scientific evidence had turned me into a theist. The science of black holes is what delivered me from atheism, convinced me that God exists, and set me on a path that ultimately led to Jesus Christ." End quote. Cosmologists say some of the strangest things. But strangeness doesn't necessarily mean or imply that something is true or false. As Hamlet tells Horatio, there are more things in heaven and earth than are dreamt of in our philosophy. And as the Apostle Paul reminds the Romans, quote, Oh, the depths of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and unfathomable his ways, end quote. The real issue is not if something is strange or unusual, but whether or not that strangeness is leading us away from or toward the truth. On this episode of Good Heavens, Wayne and I conversationally attempt to critique some of these strange cosmological sayings in light of the person of the Lord Jesus. Well, good heavens, Wayne, did you know that cosmologists say the strangest things? Did you know that? Hi, Dan. Yeah, I've noticed that. And uh, we're going to talk about some really, really strange things scientists have said. Right. And some of it's, some of the strangeness is just, it's off the charts. It's not even science. And I think that's important. Uh, We make this distinction sometimes in our episodes that a scientist is free to say anything he wants to. We're not saying that scientists should only speak about science things, but we do want to point out that sometimes when they say things, it's not science, but because it's tucked away in a chapter on a book that you found in the science section, we, we sometimes tend to forget that, that that's not a scientific statement. Hey, that's, that's not a scientific statement. I thought this was a book on astrophysics. Why are we talking about humility or insignificance? Uh, so we're going to talk about some, some really odd things, strange things. Uh, and just before we flip the mic on, as you know, we were <laughs> batting around the title of... <laughs> What are we going to call this episode? We call this program. Uh, yeah. Sometimes we, we debate it a little bit. Right, right. We, uh, we, so this was a title that we came up with like right before we went on the air. <laughs> Cosmologists say the strangest things. And uh, so right. you've prepared some notes and an outline about how we want to go with this. Uh, but if you're, a, uh, if you're a star in the Good Heavens family, you know Wayne and I can, uh, can chase rabbits. And, but that's what makes it fun, right, Wayne? That's right. Yes. And you have a fancy new headset slash microphone. Why don't you tell everybody what your what your digs are now? This is pretty cool. It sounds great. It, it works really well uh, recording remotely. It's, uh, I forget the company name now, but it's called the Arctis 5. Uh, it's a well-known gamer's headset. Okay. And it, it has a really good mic. They don't all have good mics, but this one does. So it's designed for, for gaming. 
Um, but uh, but we're gonna we're gonna podcast with it. I don't think we're it'll. Gonna, it's it's designed for podcasting too. I would say. Yeah. All right. So we're gonna. This is it. This is the first road test of your brand new microphone. And uh, doesn't matter how old you are. It's always fun to play with new toys. I think. Yes. Yeah. So uh, no gaming on this episode, but we are going to talk about uh, some of these cosmologist quotes that are free game. So maybe that's kind of a thing. <laughs> it's, it's kind of like that. <laughs> yeah. They, these are statements that are in public. Wayne and I didn't have to go undercover uh, and record these in secret cosmology meetings. These are things that you would find somewhere in, in the realm of popular writing about the universe. Uh, but why don't we kick this off like we try to do uh, with some scripture? Uh, and you have some verses, or at least a verse or two that yeah, you Yeah, wanna... so Dan, well, verse we talk about a lot is uh, Psalm 19.1, the heavens declare the glory of God. And I was thinking about that in combination with another verse in Isaiah 55.9, as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways mm. and my thoughts than your thoughts. Now, Dan, if, if God's ways are higher than ours, uh, then he's a lot smarter than we are. Yeah, well, I think uh, smart on a whole different plane, right? It's not just a matter yeah, of degrees. It's an inadequate way of describing it. Yeah, but uh, uh, I like, you know, this ties right in with uh, Colossians. Uh, some people believe this is a, this is an old hymn from the early church that Paul is quoting. Uh, it begins in verse 16 of chapter 1 of the book of Colossians, and it says, um, For by him all things were created. Now, by him means Jesus. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created by him and for him. Verse 17 says, and he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is also the head of the body, the church, and he is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself might come to have first place in everything. Wayne, first place in everything. What first place, place? Yes. Yeah. What place do you think Jesus has in secular cosmology? Oh, boy. I don't think hardly anybody gives him any place. He's not on the charts. But that doesn't mean he's in last place. It That's just right. means that, that he's being ignored for the most part. I mean, you don't... Well, yeah, there are Christians who, who are cosmologists, but they, they, they usually don't talk about their faith much. Mm-mm. Mm-hmm. And uh, I just got a book, uh, Christ and the Created Order, Perspectives from Theology, Philosophy, and Science. And it talks about the preeminence that Jesus should have uh, in creation for Christians, that Christ, as, as the Colossians verse says, that he, he upholds all things, all things through him uh, and by him and for him. Uh, it's all the glory of God that the psalm speaks of is speaking of Jesus. So uh, today we're going to take that into consideration as we go through these uh, things that we have picked up uh, from cosmologists who say some pretty strange stuff. Wayne, why don't we begin with some of your thoughts on this? Um, yeah, I, I think uh, we, we have to give some thought about um, the limits of science and the limits of what we can do with science when it comes to astronomy, because it, astronomy... Uh, is unlike some other things in science because 
we can't go there. Mm-hmm. <laughs> we have to gain whatever information we can from where we are in the universe. Right. And right. and we can't visit everywhere in the universe. Uh, in fact, we've only ever been physically to the moon. Yes. Uh, we've sent uh, robotic spacecraft around our solar system and uh, Voyager is now just a little bit outside our solar system. Mm-hmm. But uh, we're, we're kind of limited in where we're at. And so, uh, that limits what we can do in astronomy. But astronomers have figured out how to get a lot of mileage out of uh, a little information. Right, right. Now, we, we want to make clear that we're not saying that when we talk about cosmologists, we'll be specific in who we quote, and we're not indicting the whole field of cosmology, or we, we don't want to be unfair to paint broad brushstrokes about all cosmologists or atheists or anything like that. But we do want to be very specific when we talk about these things. We will be quoting specific people individually. Um, but we'll try to be very specific in 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 where we go with with what we're talking about. Um, and so, but you're right, Wayne, because cosmology is kind of more of a theoretical science, as you say. We can't get the T-shirt that says "Been There" on that because <laughs> yeah. we can't go there and do that. <laughs> we have right. to kick back on our little planet and uh, take in the photons. Uh, one at a time as they come into our eyes, we can, we only have a, we have a very limited range of vision uh, when it comes to what we can see. So we build these instruments that extend our sight, if you will, but then cosmologists do it one step further. They infer things they cannot see and make mathematical models about those things that they cannot see inferences from what they do see, right? Yes, and in astronomy, there's a a lot of a lot of it is dependent on assumptions that you make, and there's more than one way of interpreting the data. Sometimes in astronomy, there's long controversies over what a certain graph means or what the data tells you and what it doesn't tell you. Uh, there's a there's a physicist uh, astronomer that is very well known. I'd like to read something from Dan. His name is uh, George Ellis. Now, George Ellis was a, a very well-known astronomer from South Africa. And uh, he actually co-authored a book with Dr. Stephen Hawking, a very famous book called The Large-Scale Structure of Space-Time. Mm. And uh very famous book, uh, which I have not read. But anyway... Uh, There's an interesting quote of of George Ellis. He says, people need to be aware that there is a range of models that could explain the observations. I can construct you a spherically symmetrical universe with Earth at its center, and you cannot disprove it based on observations. You can only exclude it on philosophical grounds. Mm. In my view, there is absolutely nothing wrong in that. What I want to bring into the open is the fact that we are using philosophical criteria in choosing our models. A lot of cosmology tries to hide that. That's from Scientific American from October 1995. So in other words, what George is saying is that when you pick a model, you are making philosophical 
assumptions about your model. You are yes. looking for a particular kind of window to look at the universe that you cannot see. We are going to make assumptions about the unseen parts of the universe, like the beginning of the universe. And uh, one of those, one of those uh, philosophical criteria that he, he references is what we call methodological naturalism. That is that the scientist or the cosmologist limits himself to what is purely physical. There's no reference to any transcendent God. But that proposition, as you know, Wayne, when you say I'm a methodological naturalist com committed to the idea that I'm only going to study the physical world and not allow any sort of metaphysical or, or divine foot in the door is of itself interesting because cosmology deals with things that are not physical. It deals with things that they cannot see. And so there's this tension there where I'm, I'm assuming methodological naturalism, but I'm making metaphysical and philosophical assumptions that are themselves not physical. Yes. And so I would say <clears throat> when we're dealing with origins, it's a very different process than when you're doing experimental science. There, there's two different kinds of scientific investigation, and they really are not the same. So, Dan, an example, uh, back when I was in graduate school, I was teaching physics labs. One of the things we did was we measured, measured the acceleration due to gravity. Mm. And we set it up with a computer. So you, you drop a ball or something through a little sensor, and it, and it would do a graph for you of, of the speed of the ball. And, uh, and you could do this over and over, and, and you could see on a graph. It just repeated the same you know, value within a very uh, small amount. You, it was a very good way of measuring it. So you can repeat it, right? And, and you can see it. Well, we can have a lot of confidence in something like that that we can repeat. Mm -hmm. but in, the or, in the study of origins, you can't repeat it. No, how do you repeat the The origin first... of the universe is a one-time thing. Right, how do you and, repeat and so it? You can't. We, do, we do observations today from, from space, like we were saying, but there's a lot of layers of interpretation uh, that you have to use right to, to to figure out how does what I see today relate that what relate to what happened long ago right that's not easy and and you can't really prove that what you are doing in your scientific model today relates to the beginning the way you think it does mm. Mm. yes so they they begin with certain assumptions about the way in which they believe the world came to be. Um, and I was just one of the, okay, so we'll, we'll go into uh, our first sort of strange quote uh, from cosmologists. And this one comes from uh, Sean Carroll's book, uh, came out a couple of years ago called The Big Picture. And in the prologue, Dr. Carroll, who is a theoretical cosmologist at, uh, I believe it's Caltech. Uh, it's not MIT, it's Caltech, I think. 
Um, he writes in the prologue, quote, we humans are blobs of organized mud, which through the <laughs> impersonal workings of nature's patterns have developed the capacity to contemplate and cherish and engage with the intimidating complexity of the world around us. To understand ourselves, he says, we have to understand the stuff out of which we were made, which means we have to dig deeply into the realm of particles and forces and quantum phenomena, not to mention the spectacular variety of ways that those microscopic pieces can come together to form organized systems capable of feeling and thoughts, end quote. Now, what's funny about that? Well, number one, organized, we are blobs of mud. Blobs of mud. Well, Dan, uh, in Genesis, uh, uh, God did a lot with uh, a blob of mud. Yes. <laughs> so right. it's a matter of who can, who's, who's using the blob. And now it's uh, because, because Carol acknowledges he says blobs of mud, but he says blobs of organized mud. And, yes. and so it begs the question, which is not scientific, who or what is doing the organizing? And so Carol suggests that the only organizing entities are particles, forces, and quantum phenomena. And, and that's it. He goes on on the same page and he says that we are collections of atoms operating Take note of this. Operating independently of any immaterial spirits or influences. Now, that's not uh, that's science. Where that's where he's excluding God. Yeah, that's not science. That's not cosmology. That's philosophy and mm -hmm. metaphysics and, mm -hmm. and even theology. And uh, it is, it's, it's, it's a strange thing because here I'm getting a book that I got from you know, the science section, The Big Picture, uh, the, on the origins of life, meaning, and the universe itself. And uh, because Dr. Carroll, I mean, he's a very learned cosmologist, a smart guy. I mean, he certainly knows his science. But because he knows his science, we think that, well, he must also know stuff about immaterial spirits or influences. He must know, he must be right that we are blobs of organized mud. Um, but, you know, it's interesting, Wayne, we're, we're talking about this in the midst of some societal chaos going on and around us. and. Um, you know, that that if we are blobs of organized mud, why are people surprised that any of this is happening? If if it's just chaos and there's no order and we're just blobs of organized mud, uh, why should we be surprised to see the kinds of things that we do in our culture today? Because um, it, it, it also gets back to that question of significance. As Carl Sagan said, um, we are we are thin film on a, an obscure and solitary lump of rock and metal that we are not significant. Uh, and, and this leads me to my next thing. It's a really quick story uh, from Neil deGrasse Tyson. Everybody knows who Neil deGrasse Tyson is. He is the director of the Hayden Planetarium in New York City. He's a popular astrophysicist who took over the helm of Carl Sagan uh, on the Cosmos series. Uh, Cosmos, that's uh, in his third right. season. It just came out this year. Um, but uh, Dr. Tyson wrote a book in 2017. It spent some 50 weeks on the New York Times bestseller list. It's a small book. Uh, it's called Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. And uh, this would be my second uh, strange thing that cosmologists say. So again, <laughs> this is in a title called Astrophysics 
for people in a hurry. Astrophysics. Sounds like science, right? Uh huh. In the back of the book, uh, Tyson says this, quote, back in January 2000, the newly rebuilt Hayden Planetarium in New York City featured a space show titled Passport to the Universe, which took visitors on a virtual Zoom from the planetarium out to the edge of the cosmos. In route, the audience viewed Earth, then the solar system, then watched the 100 billion stars of the Milky Way galaxy shrink in turn to barely visible dots on the planetarium, on the planetarium's dome. He goes on to say, within a month of opening day, I received a letter from an Ivy League professor of psychology whose expertise was in things that make people feel insignificant. I never knew one could specialize in such a field. He wanted to administer a before and after questionnaire to visitors of the planetarium, assessing the depth of their depression after viewing the show, Passport to the Universe, he wrote. It elicited the most dramatic feelings of smallness and insignificance he had ever experienced. Huh. And then Tyson goes, and this is, the, this is where it just gets weird. Tyson goes, allow me to suggest that it's the professor, not I, who has misread nature. His ego was unjustifiably big to begin with inflated by delusions of significance and fed by cultural assumptions that human beings are more important than everything else in the universe, end quote. Now, this, this gets at the heart of this, this theme that we hear all the time, Wayne, that we are insignificant. But yeah. notice there, he went way off into the woods. He's not talking about astrophysics anymore. He got a letter from somebody, called him arrogant, and said that he was suffering from delusions of significance. And so delusions of significance. That what is that phrase? What I mean, that's that's not science, it's not philosophy, and he doesn't even know the guy. And so, you know, surprise, are we surprised when science for the last ever since the Enlightenment, or maybe and especially in the last 150 years, 160 years since Darwin, are we surprised at the way our culture is now? when repeatedly over and over again, people in positions of authority in the sciences are telling us there is no God. We came from dirt and there is no significant, we have no significance in the cosmos. How often are we going to hear this and absorb it without reacting in some way? Yeah, I think we should react against it. Uh, so in, in uh, cosmology, when it talks about when they talk about the beginning of the big bang, Mm-hmm. They are uh, trying to apply things from quantum physics. Mm-hmm. And quantum physics reduces a lot of things about at least the atomic level world to uh, uh, probability functions and random fluctuations of things. Uh, these random fields, they talk about the begin- the universe beginning with random fields that you know, w- one area would uh, vary in one way and another area would have d- d- different properties in a different way. And, and these different areas that uh, develop into different universes. Mm-hmm. So each of these universes are, have different properties and different qualities. And it's, it ends up being a, a kind of random, uh, a random universe or your random thing that's, um, 
and so you 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 have to wonder what is the uh how can you have any sense of purpose out of this if if everything that came about is just from random events and random fields what does it all mean and so the the way that they approach all of these things tends to reinforce this meaningless purposeless um view of our lives Dan. Mm-hmm. and and uh now it doesn't really have to if you don't look at it that way but uh some take it that way and they consider it um a success but i if it leads to a purposelessness then i don't think it's a success no no you have uh <clears throat> you have mentioned in the notes here um and in the New Testament, Hebrews 11.3 says, quote, by faith we understand that the universe was formed at God's command so that what is seen was not made out of what was visible, uh, end quote. Uh, go into, you were just talking about this quantum fluctuation that's allegedly responsible. It's kind of a, an airless emptiness where particles are popping in and out of existence, uh, kind of quantum, kind of con- quantum, uh, kind of complicated to explain. But uh, in our book, Story of the Cosmos, you have a great section, you've, you've cited a great section from uh, Christian philosopher and apologist, Dr. William Lane Craig. I think it's in chapter 11. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah. So I was thinking about how the Bible in Genesis and then here in Hebrews, it, it describes God creating uh, everything from nothing. Mm. And sometimes when you read from cosmologists, it sounds almost like they're they're making almost the same claim about the universe making itself from nothing. Mm. Uh, they think they think of the the universe as sort of uh, popping into existence from a spontaneous event. They they think of the beginning of the universe. Many of them they think of it as a a spontaneous uncaused event mm. that just expanded into the universe we have so but what cosmologists are saying and physicists say is really different than what the bible's <laughs> describing in the bible there really is no universe there is no nothing physical and god because he he is self-existent and he's He's transcendent. He's completely separate from the universe. Mm-hmm. And so he can create the universe. It, it makes sense in a sense, in a way, for him to create the universe because he's not a part of it. He's not dependent on it. In, in, in physics, when they try to deal with the beginning of the Big Bang, they have to assume something is is there so that they can use it in their model. Mm-hmm. They don't have a model. If there's nothing there, you need a pre-existing something. So they have to say uh, it's something. Uh, they they usually assume quantum uh, mechanics applies. Well, how do we know that? Why would it apply? Everything <laughs> about this universe is supposed to start in the Big Bang, including time. Mm-hmm. Time is a physical thing. It's not something you can touch. But it's part of the physical universe. It's the change in it's the change in in motion. It's the motion and change over time in physical objects. Move, the sun going across the sky, 
the moon going through its cycles, uh, changes in, in uh, motion in matter, matter and motion. And, and, yeah, and, yeah or, or in energy. Yeah. And, and energy, so, yeah, changing. So time had to begin with the universe, and that, that was true when God created it. But in the Big Bang, it's true when, in, in how the Big Bang starts in some way or other. Mm-hmm. So there's different w- opinions you will read about about how the Big Bang started, but they're going to say there's some kind of quantum field or something that's, uh, that had to be there before or apart from the Big Bang, and then the Big Bang came out of this. I wanted, that's kind of, I wanted to use that to set that, set up what, what Lawrence Krauss says about, yes. about nothing. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Please. Yes. So that's, uh, let's, let's get to what Lawrence Krauss said. And this is in uh, our book and this in, this is in William Lane Craig's chapter. Uh, it's chapter 11 of story of the cosmos. Mm-hmm. And, um, so Lawrence Krauss is a physicist, and he says there are a variety of forms of nothing. They all have physical definitions. The laws of quantum mechanics tell us that nothing is unstable. <laughs> Another thing is, uh, he said, there is nothing there, but it has energy. Uh, another statement, nothing weighs something. And at this point, your your mind is kind of like, what does he mean by nothing? Well, he's he's using plays on words a little bit here, mm-hmm. and and I don't really mean to go into a complete physics explanation of all he's talking about. That would take a while, but um, when he says nothing, he doesn't really mean literally nothing. He's using the word nothing in a special sense. Mm-hmm. It's not the sense that most people would think of it. Right. Um, so when a physicist refers to nothing, he may mean a a perfect vacuum out in space, for example, with no matter in it. And even in empty space, Dan, with no matter, empty space itself has physical measurable properties that's right i'd I'd like to i'd liken it to an empty uh container uh the 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 quantum field or the quantum vacuum uh you might think that the the water pitcher in the refrigerator is empty there's nothing in it but you still have the physicality of the water pitcher and a well this is true even apart from um quantum physics Mm -hmm. if you go back to the time of James Clerk Maxwell. Maxwell yes. understood this. Uh, the uh, an empty vacuum with no matter has measurable electrical and magnetic uh, constants associated with it, and you can calculate the entropy in a vacuum. You can calculate energy from a vacuum. Mm. Believe it or not, and so it's not really nothing. There's stuff <laughs> going on there. It's There's... still something. Right. There's stuff going on. A pitcher of water might be empty in the refrigerator, but there's still some residual stuff on the inside. Right. Uh, so, on. Dan, you interviewed uh, Dr. Luke Barnes. Yes, a wonderful and, individual. And it was a really great interview. He's uh, fun he to was, talk he to. Was, he really was fun to listen to. Well, he responded to these kind of statements that Lawrence Krauss made. Mm. There's a blog uh, that he wrote and a couple of links that I'm going to put out for 
how you can read about this in more detail, but um, this is one of the things uh, Luke Barnes said. He says, now let's look at Krauss claims again. Does it make sense to say there are different types of not anything <laughs> that not anything is not stable? This is Bullock's. <laughs> What Krauss is really talking about is the quantum vacuum. The mm. quantum vacuum is a type of something. It has properties. It has energy. It fluctuates. It can cause the expansion of the universe to accelerate. It obeys the highly non-trivial equations of quantum field theory. We can describe it. We can calculate, predict, and falsify its properties. The quantum vacuum is not nothing. Well, and, and it's not just the physicists and other scientists that find uh, problems with his theory. Uh, I think the, that his uh, Universe from Nothing book was written up in the New York Times, and uh, it's bad philosophy. Um, it's, it's sort of semantical. Um, it's kind of attention-getting. Um, you know, a universe from nothing? Ooh, that's interesting. I, I, wonder, uh, I wonder how that works. There's a, an Oxford chemist. I think he's from Oxford. Uh, his, his name's Dr. Peter Atkins. He wrote a book not too long ago called Conjuring the Universe. And I think that's the name of the title. But uh, Atkins is following in Krauss's footsteps in the sense that he is also advocating for me. I, I, I think he actually does away with the quantum vacuum. And I think, I think uh, Atkins may be saying absolutely nothing at all. And so here we are at a state where very intelligent, otherwise very intelligent folks are sort of playing word games in regards to the origin of the universe simply I think because Atkins and Krauss are both outspoken atheists um, that yes. they're, they're really trying to, in this case, we're not saying all cosmologists, but we're saying these two specifically and, and Stephen Hawking as well, because Stephen Hawking has said, you know, the universe doesn't need God as well. But here we have two, two, two cosmologists, scientists deliberately trying to word their statements to avoid the implications of a universe created by God. Right. I think that's uh, very evident when you read, uh, the more you read of many of these scientists, but mm -hmm. not, not all of them are so uh, against no. faith, but many of them are. Right. I was reading a philosopher of science. She's passed away. Um, Mary Midgley. And uh, she has a book called Science as Salvation. And uh, she says that this, this kind of idea of a godless universe, the materialistic way of looking at the universe, just from physical causation, no God. She says, quote, according to campaigning materialists, that is people that are strict materialists, believe in a strictly physical universe, no God, no theism, no, nothing beyond that. She says, quote, according to campaigning materialists, such as Thomas Hobbes, and Pierre-Simon Laplace, the concept of the physical world had been obscured by being long immersed in superstition. It must be scrubbed free from its animist accretions, from all talk of God and the soul, end quote. So this is from 18th century enlightenment, where you have Hobbes and Laplace and Hume uh, that said, look, if you're going to look at the universe, you're going to do good science, you're going to scrub the universe free from all this God talk, all this soul, all this metaphysical, all this stuff, we're going to get rid of it. We're going to get rid of it and we're going to be enlightened and look at it from a purely physical uh, explanations. And that's, that goes all the way back to the enlightenment. So this isn't just something that 
cosmologists today are saying. This is something that has been said about the universe for a long time. Um, and specifically in our culture, we can trace it back to the, uh, to the Enlightenment. Yeah, so that, that mindset is still very prevalent in science today. It's, I don't think it's very, that very prevalent in the general public. Mm. And uh, I would also say that if you go back to around the 16th or 17th, uh, 1600s, 1700s, back then there were many uh, scientists who really were Christians or, or maybe Catholic, and they were they really were very influenced by a Christian worldview. Mm-hmm. And that, that really had an important role in the development of science. Right. So there, there's always been a, uh, some number of, of scientists with a, a theistic or a Christian mindset. Mm-hmm. Uh, but uh, as it's turned out in modern times, I think the, the more atheistic ideas kind of, uh, become more more of influence but right there there's always been a theistic way of looking at things uh as well but you have to kind of look for it in order to find it Dan. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. kind of transition to talking about an idea about inflation because we ran into a real interesting controversy that came up a few years ago yeah let's uh let's go into that let's pretty much let's just kind of briefly unpack Inflation is the idea that uh, at the very early universe, now I know even some people are saying that inflation happened before or after the Big Bang, but inflation is the concept that our universe went from something like a subatomic particle, the, the size of a really tiny particle, to the size of something like, it just depends on what theory you're looking at or what model, it went from something like a, a particle to a basketball or a grapefruit or I'm not exactly sure what the the size was exactly, but there was this super rapid period of inflation that took place in a time that makes the blink of an eye look like an eternity, Uh, a super rapid expansion of the universe. Nobody really knows what started it. Nobody really knows why it slowed down, but uh, the phenomena of the idea of the expansion, the expanding uh, universe, if you think of of a balloon sort of popping into existence in some sense, um, this is the basic gist of it, that it was used to explain a lot of things, and it kind of does, but in the end, you can't test it, and uh, nobody nobody saw it expand. Uh, it's just all theoretical. Um, it does seem to explain some phenomena, but in the end, we really don't know what started it and why it slowed down. Um, well, yeah, I see the original Big Bang Theory did not have this concept. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. inflation is an idea that came from Alan Guth and some other scientists have worked on it. And it's actually been developed a lot by a lot of scientists, but uh, it was kind of added on to the Big Bang, I would say. Mm-hmm. And uh, it was added on to deal with certain problems of the Big Bang. But the problem is what you have to, suppose or assume in order to go along with the idea i think so it it implies there was this incredible dramatic expansion in an extremely short time Mm -hmm. so this this period of time of inflation is something they've sometimes called the inflation epoch Mm. (laughs) now an (laughs) epoch we might think of as a long period of time dan but 
this not isn't. in this case. No, this is a quick one. This is a super, <laughs> super tiny, tiny, tiny chunk a of time. A fraction of a fraction of a fraction of a second. So it's in in numbers, you would have to use exponent, exponents to show it. So it would be 10 to the minus 36 to 10 to the minus 32 seconds. Mm. So I, I, I wanted to come up with a way to uh, relate that to something familiar. So it turns out, Dan, that a blink of the eye is about 300 milliseconds. Okay. Okay. <laughs> and that's a quick blink. That's a fast blink. And then, so, but 300 milliseconds is a very, very long time compared to the inflation epoch. You could have 30 billion, trillion, trillion inflation epochs in one blink of an eye. Oh my, I did not even know that. My goodness, Wayne. It's, it, uh, so. <laughs> so this is like saying the universe instantly pops out of nothing. That, that's, that's what it's, I was just going to say. It's so fast. It's beyond instant. It's faster than instant. I can't think of anything instant in our world. Well, I, my, my way of looking at this is if you're going to believe that the universe pops out like this, why not just <laughs> say God created from nothing? Why is it more crazy for me to believe that than for someone to believe inflation? The inflation does have some mathematical basis behind it, but they can't really explain a mechanism for it. Right. It requires a kind of energy that doesn't seem to really exist mm. from any evidence we have. Mm. And uh, so it's, and then what happened was then uh, January of 2017, there were three scientists who wrote a, an article in Scientific American mm-hmm. about inflation theory. And they were pointing out problems with inflation theory. This okay, is, so this is a this is Scientific American, yeah. Scientific American January of 2017. So this is for the general population. Yeah, well, Scientific American is a little technical, but it's not um, as technical as some things. So, yeah, they thought it was good to kind of bring it out and have some kind of public debate and discussion of this, and and this started started some real discussion. So. Uh, a few months later, in May, May 10th, I think it was, 2017, there was a letter that was written uh, that was a, res- a response to this original article. Now, the original article has the neatest title. It was called Pop Goes the Universe. <laughs> Pop Goes the Universe. That's cute. Scientific American. And it's actually a free download now. I, um, so in May... Uh, of 2017, there was this letter that was a response to this. And this letter was written by and signed by 33 very famous, well-known cosmologists and physicists. So uh, like Victor Weisskopf and a a lot of important names are on this, uh, on this letter. And so they, they were talking about how they disagreed with these, three authors in the original article. Uh, A lot of their disagreement was over the issue of whether you, whether there has been experimental verification of inflation or or not. So Mm. the the original three authors make the point that inflation theory has become such a 
a plastic kind of idea that it can it can adapt to anything. And if it can adapt to anything, then you can't really verify it. Mm. Uh, mm-hmm. how, how do you know uh, if it's true or not, if it, it can adjust to anything? And then they made the point that, uh, uh, so the inflation theory is tied to this multiverse idea, the idea of many universes popping out of space. Uh, like I was describing a while ago. And they they came up with a term for this, Dan. They call it the multi-mess. <laughs> <laughs> the multi-mess. That's the multi-mess. The... <laughs> so it, everything reduces to a random fluctuations, and there's no way to explain from that why our universe is the way it is. So, So they were saying the whole purpose of scientific investigation is 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 um has failed on this idea because it doesn't really explain why our universe is the way it is it, it reduces everything to all these random fluctuations in the multiverse and so why is our universe the way it is there there is no real explanation mm. so we we were talking about the multi mess. <laughs> That's one of the things he talked about in the article. I want to read a quote about that. Yeah. Yeah. From this uh, pop goes the universe article from January, 2017. It, it says uh, the multi mess does not predict the properties of our observable universe to be the likely outcome. A good scientific theory is supposed to explain why what we observe happens instead of something else. The multi-mess fails this fundamental test. Mm. Mm. It, it, well, how do you test something that you can't test? <laughs> um, right. And it gets back to what we were saying in the beginning, that, that you have to construct a theoretical model. You have to do the math and see if the math turns out. And, and sometimes they test the calculations. But um, you, you have a quantum field. You have a multiverse. Uh, but, but all of these things, even the beginning of the universe, inflation, um, all of these things, Wayne, are are outside our ability to physically see with a telescope. Uh, to, to we can't obviously recreate a, a, the beginning of the universe in a laboratory, and um, but it's really interesting because in the in the nineteen twenties and thirties, as you know, I know inflation, as you said, wasn't really part of the Big Bang when it happened, but when the Big Bang, when people were doing the numbers and doing the science. Uh, and calculating that the idea, and it, it was pretty much the brainchild of uh, a Belgian mathematician priest by the name of Georges Lemaitre, who came up with this idea of the primeval atom or the cosmic egg. Uh, some people called it the big squeeze, where after Edwin Hubble was looking at the motions, what he considered to be the galaxies moving away from us, Lemaitre thought that maybe if you if you rewind the motion of the galaxies, if everything kind of collapsed backwards, this motion of this outward motion must have had a point of origin. And so things, if you rewind the movie of our expansion of the universe, you get back to this tiny little point. Uh, and it seemed like that was uh, that was it in 1920s and 30s. This this was the the thing. I wanted to, your, your article quote reminded me of a quote by a gentleman by the name of Sir Arthur Eddington, who studied the, the physics of stars. Um, in 1931, he says this, he says, philosophically, 
quote, philosophically, the notion of a beginning of the present order of nature is repugnant to me. I am simply stating for, I am simply stating that the dilemma to which our present fundamental conception of physical law leads us, I see no way around it. The picture of the world as drawn in existing physical theories shows arrangement of the individual elements for which the odds are multi, are multillions is his word, multillions to one (laughs) against an origin by chance. Some people would like to call this non-random feature of the world purpose or design, but I will call it non-committally anti-chance. <laughs> so he didn't think the universe happened by chance, but he didn't want to go on record as saying design or purpose. So well, that's interesting. Yeah. And then uh, Bertrand Russell, you know, the famous atheist philosopher in 1948 oh, yeah. said, uh, the universe needs no explanation. It just, it's just there. And that's all. <laughs> I mean, well, this, this doesn't satisfy anybody. Does no, it? You, you're going to stop doing science after that. It's just there. Right. Why are you, why are you doing that? Why are you doing science? If, if, if it's, if that's it, right? Yeah. Well, Dan, I want to be fair here a little bit at, at least. And uh, I'm going to read a quote from the, this response letter that was from the 33, defenders of inflation okay so these are people that disagreed with the article uh, and its conclusions right right and so this is uh, kind of a summary statement that they had it says by claiming that inflationary cosmology lies outside the scientific method isnl now isnl is the the first letters of the names of these three scientists of their last name. So this is referring to the the original article, right? By claiming that inflationary cosmology lies outside the scientific method, IS and L are dismissing the research of not only all the authors of this letter, but also that of a substantial contingent of the scientific community. Mm. Moreover, as the work of several major international collaborations is made clear, Inflation is not only testable, but it has been subjected to a significant number of tests and so far has passed every one. Uh, so in the letter goes on from these 33 scientists to give some examples, Dan, of uh, what they think are some confirmations of inflation theory. And they point out that there's thousands and thousands of research papers on the subjects about this inflation theory. Um, Now, the three authors of the original article, ISNL, they take the view that the universe will expand and it will stop and contract again, and it would contract down to some limit and then start expanding again. So so it's... uh, a bounce, that was that's the bouncing universe idea. The cyclical model or the bouncing big crunch, big bang, back and yeah. forth, kind of like a breathing uh, cosmic so they, lung. They like, they like the bouncing universe idea. The bouncing universe, that's it. That's and, it. And this is this has been looked at before, and there are some people who hold to that. But um, the 33 authors, they pick on that view too, uh, some. But... I think it's just interesting how they felt it was necessary to respond to this 
this article, right? This, mm-hmm. And it's a, it's a minority view that they have, but I think it's very enlightening what some of the things they say about inflation theory. And it's, and, but both the original article and the letter that was a response to it, I noticed something about both of them, Dan. What's that? And they, they don't mention repeatability about experiments. Hmm. Uh, it's a very, uh, it's always been a, a longstanding point about experimental science and the scientific method is that you have to repeat observations. If you can't repeat it, you haven't verified it. Hmm. Yeah, so so both both the article and the people that objected to the article are arguing about something that cannot be repeated experimentally. How do you repeat the experiment of an expanding uh, inflation uh, of space and time? Right. So what what they do is this: they they have their models, scientific theory, and mathematics that makes them able to come to some um, calculation or something about what would be visible today based on their assumptions of their model, right? Mm-hmm. So they want to they sort of calculate forward from the beginning to now or, or predict what, what they can observe today that they think would be a, a confirmation of it. Mm-hmm. But this doesn't really prove it. Because we weren't there in the beginning, and you can't go back in time to take measurements in the past. Mm-hmm. So what, when they say measure things today, when they say in the article, the, the people that objected to the article, when they're saying that inflation has been tested, what do they what do they mean by that or verified? What do they, what do they have in mind? How are they thinking that this has been tested and proven? Well, I may not even remember all the details of that, Dan, but there are various observations. They go through a list of things in the in the letter that they think are verifications. So they point out certain observations that are made about, about things in space, and they, they believe that it conf- confirms their model. Now, but there's these sort of observations uh, – might be explained other ways. There's probably multiple opinions about how they, what the significance of these things are. And there's actually a a whole, a a lot of variations on the inflation idea. So not everyone would agree on what confirms it and what it would mean to confirm it. Mm. So these three authors uh, at least some of them really did do some research in, in inflation theory. They were not unfamiliar with this, okay? So it's it's not that the 33 uh, know a lot and the other three don't. The three authors who wrote the original article were very knowledgeable as well. Mm-hmm. So, but I don't mean to wade into the details of all of that really, Dan. I'm just thinking... Um, it's, it's the important thing more to me on this is uh, understanding what science can do and what it can't do. And when you're dealing with origins, 
you can't really prove something that happened in the past. Mm. Uh, you can, because you can't repeat it. Yes. Yes. And even if you can mod- do some kind of model, let's say you can put it, put it together a computer with calculations and it happens and it shows something is out there in space that we can measure today. Mm-hmm. Well, how do you know that it played out like your computer simulation showed? Mm-hmm. Because the computer simulation, as we said earlier, is a model where you're making, as George Ellis said at the beginning, uh, you're making a philosophical assumption when you build your computer model or you make your math problem or you start off with an assumption, you're picking a philosophy to begin with in order to, to do the calculations. And so That's it's right. And, it's, I, and Dan, I, I, I worked with programmers in my job for years. Hmm. The computer programs have in them the assumptions of the programmer. Right. And that's true for scientist simulations of the universe too. So we're not, we're not denigrating the attempt at model making. We're not saying that all cosmologists are, are evil or are, are absolutely opposed to the idea of God. But when we are talking about science, it's important to recognize the difference between theory and physical being able to physically test for, well, something we're all familiar with, you can do a physical test for coronavirus uh, and you can get the data and you can look and you can see and you can say, yeah, uh, here it is. Uh, but you can't, you can't physically test for the origin of the universe. Um, you can build a model and there's nothing wrong with building a model. But a lot of these scientists, uh, not a lot, but, but some of them, especially the ones we've mentioned, Mr. Hawking and, and Dr. Krauss and, uh, and others, uh, are, use models of cosmology, Sean Carroll as well, uh, use the science to leverage in on the, the idea of the existence of God and, and find the idea of the existence of God wanting. But science does not finally give them that conclusion. Science does not prove that God does not exist or that Jesus does not create the universe. That, 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 right. that, that doesn't come from the scientific data. But uh, I have this quote from uh, Robert Jastrow, who I think was an agnostic. He was a, he was a, uh, uh, astrophysicist and, uh, or a cosmologist. Uh, he wrote an article in the New York times in 1978. And this is just from a, uh, uh, he says, uh, the, the article is called have astronomers found God. And this was in the New York times in 1978 a short mm-hmm. quote, uh, Jastro says, when an astronomer writes about God, his colleagues assume he is either over the hill or going bonkers. <laughs> I've heard that. Yeah. And, and it, it is. Now, here's another one. Uh, this was from, we, we talked about Stephen Hawking at the beginning. George Ellis worked with Stephen Hawking. Uh, probably everyone has at least heard of Stephen Hawking's introduction or a Stephen Hawking's A Brief History of Time. It was a huge best-selling book that a lot of people yeah. bought and a few people read. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. I, so I hear, you know, but a very popular book and the popularity of which uh, surprised even Mr. Hawking, uh, written in 1998, uh, a, a Brief History of Time. But the introduction to that book was written by the late Dr. Carl Sagan. Did you know that? Uh, no, I didn't remember that. Yeah, yeah. Sagan, but I want to read Sagan's quote. And I want, again, I, I have respect. I kind of have a love-hate relationship with Dr. Sagan because he got me interested in science. He's a very excellent science communicator, but I don't agree with his scientific materialism or his agnostic atheism. 
though he didn't identify as an atheist, he certainly was not friendly to theism. Um, mm-hmm. Yet, at least in his science, but I know from talking to his daughter that he was very open about his daughter learning about Christianity at home from their nanny. So he's a puzzle when it comes to, to, to theism. But with the science, Dr. Sagan certainly would, was, not, uh, was not favorable of the idea of God. I want, you to re- I want to read this quote. He says, quote, speaking of Hawking's book in the intro, he says, quote, this is a book about God or perhaps about the absence of God. The word God fills these pages. Hawking embarks on a quest to answer Einstein's famous question about whether God had any choice in creating the universe. Hawking is attempting, as he explicitly states, to understand the mind of God. And this makes all the more unexpected the conclusion of that effort, of the effort, at least so far. A universe with no edge in space, no beginning or end in time, and nothing for a creator to do, end quote. Hmm. Now, you, 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 there's, there's a ton of stuff we could talk about that one for an hour, but the, the presupposing of what God, of God's involvement in the created order here, that, they, that Hawking thinks he can do science and come up with an explanation that completely leaves God, if you will, out of the equation. But that, that assumes, I mean, Hawking and Sagan both have to assume what God is like for them to be able to say the math rules him out. So really what they're talking about is a sort of straw man caricature of, of God, not the God of the Bible, but you hear the word God and, and you know, automatically your mind goes to, to the God of the Bible and the, the, you know, to Jesus or something, if you're a Christian. And, and yet that's not what they're talking about. They set up this idea of God that it's, it sounds right. like God, but it's a straw man idea of, of God. And uh, I want to, I want to. Yeah. I, Dan, I think this is important to note because Christians sometimes misunderstand what scientists are really saying when they when they use the word God. Um, mm. It's um, it's not like it, it's belief in God. You know, like for example, back in the time of Letterman, when he was uh, writing stuff about the Higgs boson, uh, people called it the God particle, mm. and. Uh, but it wasn't it wasn't considered by physicists to be any kind of confirmation of God in any way. It was probably a joke from somebody. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Uh, Leon Letterman didn't particularly like the calling it that, but it's for some reason it stuck. And and uh, you know it's so the word God is thrown around for the for the for the sake of communicating to people sometimes. Yeah. Not with, uh, not with a right uh, respect for the idea really sometimes. Right. Uh, in that book I mentioned at the beginning of the broadcast, Christ and the Created Order, uh, several essays about Jesus in relation to creation. And uh, the, one of the first chapters uh, by Murray Ray, uh, Jesus Christ, the order of creation, Ray writes, he says, to begin with, uh, he says, what does it mean to say that Christ is the one in whom the true nature of things is revealed? He says, to begin with, it means that all created things in heaven and on earth are the outcome, this is kind of surprising, of God's love. Their reason for being is revealed in the sending of the Son to gather them into reconciled relationship with the Father and to fill them with his Spirit. This is an act of love 
and is straightforwardly affirmed by, uh, he says, what, uh, what the Gospel of John says, quote, God so loved the world, the cosmos. Right. God so loved the cosmos that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him may not perish, may have eternal life. And so all things, as we said in the beginning with the, with the scriptures, uh, human beings, birds, whales, trees, um, you know, 1 Timothy 4, 4, Genesis 1 uh, talks about God, everything that he has made is good and that the creation itself hangs together in Jesus. And it's just a wonderful mystery that it's, it's difficult to explain. It's hard to imagine, but that everything that we see is, is God's creation. We don't separate, shouldn't separate this, this idea of the physical world, that that's all there is. That's like looking at only Jesus's humanity. Um, th- th- we have the revealed word of God and we have the revealed, we have God's revealed, revealing himself through nature. But this, the whole of nature is held together in the person of Jesus. And that, that is what a lot of what we are reading tonight denies, tragically, that, that, yes. that somehow science has done away with God from Laplace to, to, to Bertrand Russell to Lawrence Krauss to, to Stephen Hawking, Carl Sagan, these brilliant, otherwise brilliant minds and, and exceptionally gifted communicators of science are going out of their way to they would rather relegate the, the the origin of our universe to nothing or to an empty vacuum uh, or to a multi mess um, anything anything but the risen jesus and uh, I think that is something that we need to keep in mind as we as we do science uh, as we think about science yeah that 's a great thing to end on dan and uh it's I think it also points us back to God's word because yes. there there are things that we can't fully answer uh, from our own analysis, our own reason. We have to have revelation mm-hmm. from the creator. And that's what we have in the Bible. And right. so it doesn't answer, you know, the Bible doesn't answer all our questions about cosmology. It doesn't, <laughs> but but it it gives us a framework that we can build our lives on, and right, it's, it's right good, uh, for that. Um, there's a physicist by the name of Leonard Susskind um, at Stanford University in California, um, and he wrote a book called "The Cosmic Landscape." I think it was back in 2006, 2007. He says the the title of it's really telling. The title of it is "The Cosmic Landscape: String Theory and the Illusion of Intelligent Design." And he quotes, there's this quote, it's very short. He says, uh, God made man with some purpose that involved man's ability to appreciate and worship God. Let's forget that story. The whole point of science is to avoid such stories. Wrong. Yep. I, you know, I think that's wrong. That's uh, not Isaac physics. Newton, <laughs> Isaac Newton and James Clerk Maxwell, Maxwell would, would heartily disagree with that statement. Absolutely. It's not physics. It's not science. Uh, it, it's not anything. It's just, a, now, Dr. Susskind can have that opinion. We're not saying he can't have an opinion like that, but, sure. but that's not science. But when you write a science book to the popular imagination and you repeatedly tell people that God doesn't exist, science has disproved God, you are insignificant, uh, take note and, and stand up and say, you know, this is not science. And it's not, it's not helping us. 
uh, by right. saying this. I mean, as, as Dr. Carroll said in the beginning of the, the, the quote I had at the beginning from his book, The Big Picture, look, if, if it, all it takes is for us to know each other by what we're made of, where's world peace, Wayne? We know so much about our physical bodies, more so than any generation before us with all the technology that we have. We've discovered wonderful things about the human body. Has that brought right. peace to humanity? No. No. Has our knowledge of the universe, which seems to transcend any generation prior to ours, has our knowledge of the stars in the universe created peace on earth? No. <laughs> no. Science is not anywhere near solving the problems that we face as human beings today That's because right. it's, it's far more, Wayne, than, than our skin color, than what we're made of, than where we live, than how much money we make. It's not about it our... Takes, it takes changing people from the inside out. And right. That's what God does to a person. Right. The human soul person. is there and it's real and it was created by God for the purpose of glorifying God. And when we, when we transgress that and we, we go away from that, uh, there's going to be consequences and problems. Ideas have consequences. And I think when science repeatedly tells us this drab, terrible, tragic story that God doesn't exist and we're just blobs of mud and we have no purpose and there's no design, what do you expect people to do? How, how can that enliven people or encourage people or inspire people? It can't. It kills people. It maims. It harms. It destroys and uh, so we want we want to tell people there is more to this, and there's another way of looking at this. Right, right. I mean, Romans ten nine and ten. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. And uh, we need more people who are who can do that, engaging in this dialogue between science and faith, science and religion, uh, because it's the dominant paradigm of our day. Science, the authority of science, it dominates. We need more Christians to speak up and, and talk about Jesus however they can. Right. And science uh, does not outweigh the authority of God's word. It doesn't. It's a handmaid. It's a helper. It's mm -hmm. one way to know the physical world. It's mm -hmm. not the only way to know the physical world. And there's no way that you can explain everything with science. I mean, you talk about a relationship between a husband and a wife. Now, the husband can say, well, I know my wife. She's got DNA. She's got this blood type. She weighs this much. She's this old. Uh, she's got this color hair. You could describe your wife through purely scientific means, right? Mm -hmm. Would that satisfy as an explanation that you really knew your wife? No. 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 <laughs> it's, it's, a, it's one dimension of her humanity, but it's certainly insufficient as the whole picture. And I think that's where we are with science today. They think because we've, we've drilled down to the smallest quark and particle that we've figured out everything about the universe in some sense, that we, 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 we think that physics and science can tell us the whole story, and it can't. It just simply can't. We are finite creatures. Right. And uh, if we had a, good, a, a correct understanding of... Uh, our faith and a biblical view of things, maybe that could actually give us some insight into some different ways of looking at the science. Absolutely. I well, Wayne, sometimes. Yeah. Uh, I think it's been a, a, a strange <laughs> insight into the, to the, to the weird things that cosmologists say. <laughs> yeah. uh, there's certainly no end of disagreement as to where our universe came from right now. The big bang is, 
is pretty much it. Add some uh, inflation to it. Um, but, uh, you know, we here at Good Heavens think that the universe is, uh, is, a, is an artistic and poetic and loving expression of the creator. Uh, it's not just a technical enterprise. It's also personal. The heavens declare the glory of God and reflect his invisible attributes and his nature. And, you know, it's interesting in this book I was reading, you know, the, the doctrine of God creating out of nothing, you know, creation ex nihilo. Uh, one author suggests creation ex amore, creation out of love. Oh, that's good. <laughs> Isn't like that? that? Because God is love right. and he is the source of what he has made. And I, I never thought about it this way, but they were saying that, you know, the sights, the sounds, the scents, the scents, especially the, when they said this, the idea of scents, the fragrance in a flower or the fragrance of a pine tree or the fragrance of a, of a, a mesquite tree or the fragrance of, of a mesquite bush, uh, the, 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 the aromas of nature are all kind of also reflecting God's glory. So when you smell a flower or something, there's, there's the scent of Christ in the in nature isn't that kind of cool you know the color on a bird's yeah yeah, the color on a bird's wing but i never thought of the the idea of the sense of the the sense of smell and the aromas from from nature itself being a kind of aroma of of christ you know that the senses Mm -hmm. are all of our senses are alive with the things that god has made and Mm -hmm. uh, i think that's just fantastic all right we've been going on and on for quite some time (laughs) thank you for hanging with us uh, and you can you can put up my notes on Patreon. I'm I'm going to put it on my blog on creationcultures.net. Okay. Yeah, we'll have notes. Uh, Wayne's notes. Um, I will. We'll have the link uh, to that. Uh, and if you'd like to add to the discussion, leave a comment uh, or two. Uh, send us an email. Uh, tell us how things are going. How you're enjoying uh, big uh, uh, good heavens, and uh, we love to hear from you. So, uh, Wayne, it's been another great podcast. I've enjoyed talking with you. We could talk about this for hours and hours and hours. And uh, what else? There's always more more things that scientists have said. We could uh, do this again later. Right. Uh, scientists, <laughs> cosmologists say the strangest things. That's right. Well, <laughs> All right, Steve. Wayne. We will see you next time right here on... Good heavens. Good heavens. Cosmologists build models of the universe, and no model captures what the universe is really like, as our best knowledge of the cosmos is finite. But as we saw in this episode, several well-known physicists and cosmologists wish to posit models that deliberately attempt to do away with God. We might consider some of these anti-theistic cosmological models as miniature kingdoms of sorts, with the model builders enthroned in their sundry chairs of science, surveying the work that they have accomplished. It reminded me of a particular king mentioned in the fourth chapter of the book of Daniel. Quote, The king reflected and said, Is this not Babylon the great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven, saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared, Sovereignty has been removed from you, and you will be driven away from mankind, and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle, and seven periods of time will pass over you, until you recognize that the Most High is ruler 
over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. Immediately, the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind and began eating grass like cattle, and his body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. For his dominion is an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom endures from generation to generation, and all the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But he does according to his will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of earth, and no one can ward off his hand or say to him, What hast thou done? At that time my reason returned to me, and my majesty and splendor were restored to me for the glory of my kingdom, and my counselors and my nobles began seeking me out. So I was reestablished in my sovereignty, and surpassing greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the King of heaven. For all his works are true, and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. End quote. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. He is Lord of the sun, moon, and stars, and all the celestial host. Black holes, galaxies, quasars, pulsars, brown dwarfs, red dwarfs, red giants, blue giants. His kingdom is more glorious, more wondrous, beyond all comprehension and majesty of man. To create a model of the cosmos and leave out the rightful King of Kings and Lord of Lords is a tragic departure from reason that does indeed have dire consequences. But as Jesus says to all of us, scientists and non-scientists alike, quote, repent, for the kingdom of the heavens is at hand, end quote. We appreciate you taking the time to join us for this episode of Good Heavens. Be sure to check out Good Heavens on iTunes, Patreon, and Podbean. For more information on Good Heavens or any other resources on Christian apologetics, world religions, and cults, be sure to visit Watchman.org today. For Good Heavens, I'm Dave Mitchell. Dave Mitchell